Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Advent Agitations. How then can we be saved? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 27, 2011, the first Sunday in Advent. This week, Americans will celebrate Thanksgiving. Although many ordinary people who are just trying to make a life are finding it harder and harder to give thanks. The protests on Wall Street reveal how many people on Main Street consider themselves part of a permanent underclass, trapped by economic and political forces beyond their control. Hear us, O Shepherd of Israel. Shine forth. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Occupy Wall Street has cast a harsh light on economic disparities in the United States. The grievances go further to include our grossly dysfunctional government, partisan politics, environmental degradation, and declining educational standards. Banks receive billions in bailouts to privatize their profits and socialize their risks. We spent trillions for 10 years of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and paid for them with a government credit card. People of power and privilege then suggest that we balance our budgets by eliminating what they call entitlements for ordinary workers. Restore us, O oh God. Make your face shine upon us. While Americans celebrate Thanksgiving this week, Christians around the world begin a new liturgical year with the first Sunday in Advent. And since Christians are radical egalitarians who believe that God loves every nation as much as their own, we need to widen our lens to include our whole human family. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Michael Lewis calls himself a disaster tourist in his, boom, in his book Boomerang about the debt crises in Iceland, Greece, Ireland, and Germany. The Arab Spring overthrew dictators in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya but also unleashed unknown forces that would fill the political vacuums created in a dozen more countries. These countries face uncertain times for many years. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. In a category by itself is Africa. It takes a great leap of moral imagination to comprehend the devastation in countries like Zimbabwe, Liberia, Somalia, Sudan's Darfur, and especially the Congo. A 2008 study by the International Rescue Committee concluded that 5.4 million excess deaths occurred in the Congo from 1998 to 2007, a staggering 10% of the population and a death toll eight times greater than the Rwandan genocide. Millions more have been displaced. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
If it seems strange to begin the Advent season with such a litany of woes, take a closer look at the readings for this week with their bitter refrains. The psalmist Asaph complains that his people have eaten the bread of tears and drunk tears by the bowlful. They are the object of mockery and scorn among their neighbors. The walls of their vineyards have crumbled, and wild boars ravage among the ruins. For his part, the prophet Isaiah laments how Israel's holy and glorious temple has been burned to the ground. Deportation of the people by Assyrian conquerors has emptied their sacred cities so that they resemble barren deserts. All that we treasured lies in ruins, he cries. God seems to have hidden his face. He no longer speaks or acts. His people are driven like shriveled leaves in a wild wind. And so he wonders in Isaiah 64, 5, how then can we be saved? I'm thankful for the brutal realism of Asaph in Isaiah. There's so much more authentic than a Hallmark Christmas card. They warn me not to sentimentalize Christmas. They remind me that Advent is about watching and waiting. We watch and wait, each in our own deeply personal way, for God to come down and do something about our unsolved problems, our unanswered prayers, and so many unfulfilled promises. Following the psalmist and the prophet, we rightly beg God to restore, revive, and rescue us. In the words of the Christmas hymn, Advent isn't about pious platitudes, but, our, but about our very real hopes and fears of all the years. Of course, the Christmas story insists that God has done something, only in ways that we didn't expect. The sacred baby Jesus entered into our secular world, the eternal into the temporal, the heavenly into the mundane. The British writer G.K. Chesterton captures this divine descent in his poem, The House of Christmas. And he even suggests that God himself was homeless. Listen to G.K. Chesterton's poem, The House of Christmas. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to Rome, in the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable, close at hand, with shaking timber and shifting sand, grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes, and strangers under the sun, and they lay on their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes, and chance and honor and high surprise. But our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable, where the beasts feed and foam. Only where he was homeless are you and I at home. 
We have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts we lost how long ago. In a place no chart nor ship can show under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives' tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough, and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the fire drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening, home shall all men come. To an older place than Eden, in a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. A foul stable with filthy animals, a pregnant and homeless teenager, our wild world. It's in God's own homelessness, says Chesterton, that we discover our own sense of home. And so, following the words of our Lord from this week's Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, 35, we keep watch during Advent. For books this week, I review Peter Eichstadt. The title of the book, Consuming the Congo, War and Conflict Minerals in the World's Deadliest Place. Chicago Lawrence Hill Books, 2011, 232 pages. It takes a great leap of moral imagination to comprehend the decade of devastation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly known as Zaire. According to a 2008 study by the International Rescue Committee, 5.4 million excess deaths occurred in the Congo from 1998 to 2007, a staggering 10% of the population and a death toll eight times greater than the Rwandan genocide. Peter Eichstadt is thus not exaggerating when he calls Congo by far the deadliest region in the world. Over half those deaths occurred since the war ended in July 2003. The overwhelming majority of the victims were civilians. About half of them were children. Millions more Congolese have fled to neighboring countries as both a cause and a consequence of the war. Hundreds of thousands of women have been raped. Peace accords officially ended the war although continued hostilities and the social, economic, and political consequences of the war make for a fragile peace. How do you understand a war in a country the size of Western Europe, the 12th largest in the world, with 200 ethnic groups, and that involve nine border countries, the interventions of countries like France, Belgium, the United States, Cuba, and China, and 30 rebel militias and proxy armies composed of mercenaries from as far away as Serbia. Next to the works by Gerard Prunier, Africa's World War, 
In Jason Stearns' book, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, Eichstatt focuses more narrowly on what he calls the conflict minerals in eastern Congo. The Congo suffered 400 years of political disintegration that began with the European and Arab slave trades of the 16th century and was followed by the wholesale plunder of the region in the 19th century by Belgium's King Leopold. When independence from Belgium came in 1960, the Congolese were hardly ready to rule their vast country. For 32 years, President Joseph Mobutu Sese Seko, who was backed by the United States, epitomized corruption, repression, and incompetence. Laurent Kabila overthrew Mobutu in 1997, was himself assassinated in 2001, and was now followed by his son, Joseph Kabila. The trigger for the First Congolese War was the 1994 Rwandan genocide, when mainly Hutu people slaughtered 800,000 Tutsis in the space of three months. A million Hutus then fled 200 miles west into eastern Congo, set up a government in exile, and were then pursued by the new Tutsi government that sought retaliation. In fact, Mobutu supported the Hutus against Rwanda's Tutsi government. About 50,000 refugees perished in the first month from starvation, cholera, thugs, and massacre by the Rwandan government. This so-called First Congo War lasted until Kabila overthrew Mobutu in 1997. Eichstätt's book focuses on what's commonly called the Second Congo War, which pitted Kabila's hapless and corrupt government against Uganda, Rwanda, local miners, and numerous militias in the plunder of Congo's vast natural resources of copper, cobalt, coltan, gold, and diamonds, which resources paid for the wars. Eichstätt takes his readers to the sprawling refugee camp in Goma, which was built to accommodate 50,000 people, but is now home to 600,000. We join him as he interviews UN experts, gold miners, rape victims, pastors, journalists, village chiefs, and the people up and down the supply chain of Congo's conflict minerals. It's a tragic irony that Congo's minerals supply only a small percentage of those that end up in our electronic gadgets like cell phones, contrary to inflated figures repeated by ag advocacy groups. But in, a horribly but in a horribly impoverished country, a small percentage of a big number adds up to billions of dollars, almost none of which in the current scenario end up helping ordinary citizens in their communities. And while name and shame campaigns might feel good, says Eichstatt, and the rest of the world has an obligation to do its part, only the Congolese can solve their own problems. The author is Peter Eichstatt. The title of the book, Consuming the Congo. For film this week, I review a movie called Nora's Will, originally released in Mexico in 2008 
and more recently on DVD in 2010, Nora's Will. A friend recommended this black comedy to me after she watched it at her synagogue. Ms. Mariana Chenillo won the award for Best Director, and the film earned an aerial for Best Picture in the Mexican equivalent of the Oscars. When Nora died, her husband Jose was left with the task of helping a disparate cast of family members find closure. That was hard because they were married for 30 years and then divorced for 20 years. The Orthodox Jews descend on the house with strict rituals about burial. The housekeeper, Fabiana, places a Catholic rosary around Nora's neck. Neither the Catholics nor the Jews will bury Nora because she committed suicide. And Jose doesn't even believe that God exists. Crazy Aunt Leah comes to cook. The son, Reuben, and his wife, Barbara, arrive from Dallas. And two granddaughters ask all the powerful questions that kids ask. In the end, an empathetic rabbi observes, What goes on in a person's head is a mystery. We must not judge. And so Nora is buried, and the family reconciles after a story of memories, regrets, tensions, and humor. The title of the film, Nora's Will. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem for Advent. It's called Advent Hands. It's by Catherine Alder. I see the hands of Joseph. Back and forth along bare wood they move. There is worry in those working hands, sorting out confusing thoughts with every stroke. How can this be, my beautiful Mary now with child? Rough with deep splinters, these hands, small painful splinters like tiny crosses embedded deeply in this choice to stay with her. He could have closed his hands to her, said no, and let her go to stoning. But dear Joseph opened both his heart and hands to this mother and her child, preparing in these days before with working hands and wood pressed tight between them. It is these rough hands that will open and be the first to hold the child. I see the hands of John, worn from desert-raging storms and plucking locusts from sand-ripped rocks beneath the remnant of a Bethlehem star. A howling wind like some lost wolf cries out beneath the moon. Or was that John? This loneliness enough to make a man go mad. He's waiting for this. God's whisper Go now, he's coming. You have prepared your hands enough. Go, he needs your servant hands, your cupping hands, to lift the water and place his feet upon the, hat, the path to service and to death. Go now, John, and open your hands to him. It is time. I see a fist held tight and fingers blanched to white. Prying is no easy task. These fingers find a way of pulling back to old positions, protecting all that was and is. Blanched to white, 
no openness, all fright. But then the spirit comes. A holy Christmas dance begins and blows between the twisted palms. This fist opens slowly, gently, beautifully. The twisted fingers letting go. Their rock-solid place and line has eased. And one by one the fingers lift true color is returned. And though the deepest of mysteries, the holiest of holies, O longing of longings, beyond all human imagining, this fist, as if awakened from Lazarus's cold stone dream, reaches out to hold the tiny newborn hand of God. Catherine Alder, the title of the poem, Advent Hands. And by the way, don't forget our new Journey with Jesus Advent Poetry page, where you not only find this poem, but many other poems for the season of Advent. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 27, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.